Please be seated. Let's open the Word of God. We're in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. In your Bibles, if you need a Bible, there are extras in the back, and you're welcome to follow along uh, as needed in that Bible. Luke chapter 3, we're beginning in verse 21. As you're turning, let me welcome any who are watching our live stream from home or perhaps a hospital room. Wherever you are, we send you our love, and we're so pleased uh, that you're attending to the Word of God. God speaks through His Word. May it bless you and all of us. We'll be reading uh, most of our passage. We won't read through the entire genealogy, but we have that in view as well today. Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, this is the word of God. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying... The heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph the son of Heli. Thus far we read in the word of God. May he bless it to all who hear, believe, and obey it. Amen. Amen. As we mentioned in our prayer time, uh, the United Kingdom has had a change of monarch from the grand Elizabeth II. Uh, I've here a nickname that I think is most fitting, Elizabeth the Faithful to reign for 70 of her 96 years, uh, a God-fearing woman. I believe her to be a Christian woman. I expect to see her in glory. Uh, But they have a new king. And apparently he becomes king at the very moment of death. Uh, So they can say the queen is dead, long live the king in the same breath. And yet they, although that's automatic, they have this special ceremony to make sure the right person is king. I thought it was called the Ceremony of Ascension, uh, but it's not A-S-C-E-N. It's the Ceremony of Ascension, double C. There's a difference because you're just ascending to, uh, uh, entering into an office. There we go. You can look it up later. They have this elaborate ceremony, and uh, it is attended by members of the Privy Council. So that's not you and I. It's a group of senior politicians that formally advise the monarch, including the Lord Mayor of the City of London and senior judges and officials. And uh, they come up with this proclamation. They make sure the monarch, the previous monarch is dead. And then they put down on a document the name of the new monarch. And then they all sign that. Members of the royal family sign it as if to say, I'm not king, but he is. Yes, he is king. And they all sign that. Uh, The prime minister signs, the archbishop of Canterbury signs, the lord chancellor, and the earl marshal, the duke of Norfolk, who is responsible for organizing state ceremonies. 
not only do they sign that document, but they make a big proclamation and they bring out the trumpets and they wear uh, the regalia of heralds. You've seen it perhaps on news clips. And those trumpets, when they blow, you can't ignore them. They're pretty loud. And not only do they call for blowing of trumpets, but they fire cannons. Cannons. So people know something has happened. And they've been doing that to mark the death of the monarch and the rise of a new one. And they do it not only in London, but they do it in the capitals of each of the member states. And this proclamation will be copied and read aloud in each of those places when there's a new king. Why do we mention that? Well, we're talking about the King of Kings, Jesus, and we're looking at the the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, one of the four testimonies about who Jesus is. And we come now to this part where Jesus steps forward to take his first public action, his first step in public ministry. All four gospels mention this event in slightly different ways. And it begs the question, who is this and how does Jesus begin his public ministry? Why does he do this first? And by the way, where are the trumpets? Where are the heralds and the cannons? And I think we'll see that God beats all of those things. That God has his own manner, as it were, for the beginning, the commencement of the public ministry of Jesus Christ. And that is what we'll look at here with the material the Holy Spirit guided Luke to give us from this portion of Scripture. We're first going to look at the material that presents Jesus as the Son of Man. That's a big part of it. But also, secondly, Jesus as the Son of God. That's a very big part of what is said here. And then we'll all tie it together to see how both combine to make him the unique Savior, the only true Savior of the world. And it's not just fundamentally saying Jesus is God and man and its Savior, but it is that. There's more for us to know and understand and draw upon. There's more for us to share with a world that's very confused about who Jesus is. So let's look first. The Son of Man, his genealogy is given. Do we note that here? It says in verse uh, 23, uh, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. And he was being the son. And Luke gives his parenthetical comment, as it was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi. And it goes through a list. We're not going to read all 77 names. 11 lists of seven. Matthew has a similar genealogy, although he has fewer names, and some of the names are different in the two. What is Luke telling us? He's telling us that Jesus was a man. He wasn't uh, an angel or a supernatural being pretending to look like a man. He had connections to history physically. And how do we reconcile the slight differences between Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy? There are several theories, but no one is is dominant and, and can be proven conclusively. What I have held for many years as a student of Scripture is that Luke primarily gives us the biological genealogy of Jesus through his mother's side. 
Do you notice that Luke alone gives that parenthetical comment, being the son as it was supposed of Joseph? We know that Joseph's blood did not flow through Jesus' veins, but Joseph, the son-in-law of Heli, leads Luke to give us Mary's genealogy. And I think Matthew talks about Jesus being the son of Joseph and then Joseph the son of someone else was giving us Joseph's genealogy. That's one of three dominant theories. The other theories are very complex and we don't have the time to go into them. But we do know from God's word some things that are unmistakable. Jesus was a man. He had grown to the age of 30. And what was special about the age of 30? Why now? What triggered this? Not only in his life, but in the life of John the Baptist, who had just recently started his ministry. They were cousins. What started it? Well, at the age of 30, in the Jewish mindset, the age of 13, you begin becoming a son of the commandments. You take your bar mitzvah and you enter into adult life. But you haven't fully matured at 13. But it was at age 30 you reached the peak of maturity in the Jewish mindset. Indeed, in the book of Numbers, chapter 4, verse 3, it specifies that you can serve as a priest if you were 30 years old up to 50 years old. The Levites. So 30 years was a start of your maturity and your presence in the community in that established way. So it shouldn't surprise us. John the Baptist is busy. Jesus now steps forward. And this genealogy that we're given tells us something about the the one who steps forward. Whether you're looking at Luke or Matthew's gospel, they certainly agree and converge. Whether traced through Joseph or traced through Mary, Jesus was a descendant of King David. You see that in the text. It's very clear. It traces them all the way back to David the king. Why is that significant? Well, David is the king whom God promised that one from your line would sit on the throne of his people forever. How would David see that happen? Men come and go, but the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, think of Psalm 110, that great messianic royal psalm, Jesus is the one whom David would call Lord. Jesus would sit on the throne. He is the king of kings. So he had to be related to David. We see also that in this list of greats in the genealogy, it goes back to Abraham. Both genealogies, Matthew and Luke, go back to Abraham. And he is the father of the Jews. As you recall, God called a people to himself out of Ur of the Chaldees. He took a pagan worshiper named Abram. And brought him to himself, making promises to him, and changed his name to Abraham, the father of many, and gave him and Sarah in their old age a child, and said, From you I will bless all the peoples of the earth, and your descendants, Abraham, will be as countless as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. By identifying Jesus as a son of Abraham, With all Jews, he was in the line to inherit 
all the Jewish prophecies. And we know that Jesus himself is the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies. A regal connection, a Jewish indeed prophetic connection. But here in Luke's gospel, the genealogy, which is different than Matthew's, tracing back doesn't stop. Let's drop in on the genealogy at the very end, verse 37 and 38. The son of Methuselah, we've heard of him, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Whereas Matthew's genealogy starts with Abraham and works down to Jesus, Luke is tracing back as far as Adam. He doesn't stop at Abraham. What is Luke doing? He's a, is a little carried away. No, Luke is making the point that not only is Jesus Jewish and a descendant of David, <clears throat> but Jesus has become fully a man. And there's a connection with every human being, every descendant from Adam. Luke has a broad audience in mind. He speaks in his gospel, not only to the Jews about their Messiah, but he speaks to the world that the world might receive their king. What a beautiful clue here, this connection with all humanity. And it's more significant than that. Jesus is the son of man in a way that we would say he is the second Adam. The second Adam. I can only give you just the briefest sketch. If you'll turn to 1 Corinthians 15 for a few verses to observe this. Jesus is not only a man, but he is stepping forward to take the place in history, in humanity as the second Adam. Most of us remember the first Adam, not personally, but we know who he is. He was the guy who was set in the garden, but he blew it. He didn't obey the Lord and he lost paradise and fell into sin and we needed salvation. God puts Jesus forward as the second Adam in his humanity. He will keep all God's commandments in his righteousness. He will procure paradise for all who believe, all who are in him. There's a theological paradigm shift here. In Adam all die in Christ shall all be made alive. Let's just sample some verses here in um, 1 Corinthians 15. It begins by talking about the resurrection, but let's drop down to verse 21 and 22. 21, for as by a man, Adam, came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die. That covers everyone. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. If you are in Christ, you will be made alive. Let's drop down again. We're just sampling to verse 45 and following. The argument continues throughout much of the chapter. It's also found in Romans 5. But 1 Corinthians 15, 45 says this. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Verse 47. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. 
the second man is from heaven. In verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, shall, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Do you see how strategic it is, as Luke does in his genealogy, to connect Jesus with Adam? He shares our Adamic nature, our flesh, our blood, our finitude, our need for sleep, our need for food. Our weariness, blisters on our feet and calluses on our hand, dust in our eye. Jesus shared our human life. But he is not the man from dust. He is the man from heaven. This son of man came with the goal of serving as the second Adam. Oh, what rich theology there is. You may have been a believer for a long time and never contemplated that. Study Romans 5 and 6. Study 1 Corinthians 15 to see the glorious dynamic paradigm God has put forward to redeem humanity. Jesus, a man. Jesus is also the Son of God. Jesus is also the Son of God. Back to Luke chapter 3. This baptism seems like a very human thing. Yet in it, Jesus is proclaimed the Son of God. Let's revisit the text. Verse 21, Luke 3. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And, this gets better and better, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. This is a fantastic, significant moment in the public appearing of Jesus. A man walking down to the shores of Jordan where other people had lined up for baptism. What was John the Baptist's baptism? It was a baptism of repentance. I repent of my sins, wash me and cleanse me, make me ready for the appearing of the Messiah, make straight the highways of our God. John the Baptist had a baptism for repentance. It's not the same as Christian baptism, which Jesus would institute. John's baptism was to clean up sinners. Jesus was in line. He came. And yet the very wording of Luke, sparse but very specific, says all the people were baptized and Jesus had been baptized. Setting apart the baptism of Jesus. What happened with Jesus was a little different is what Luke is telling us. It doesn't say Jesus was baptized with everyone else. No, his baptism is, is set apart even in this phrasing. Because Jesus is different. How do we know he was different? Well, first, what do we see? Luke alone, in talking of the baptism of Jesus, mentions, as it were in passing, that Jesus was praying. He was in communion with his Father in heaven. Wouldn't you want to know what Jesus was praying on this day when he was stepping forward to be identified as the Son of God, the Messiah? There's no, there's no going back to Nazareth the same after this day. 
People will point, people will see, people will talk. What was it Jesus was praying about? We don't know. And we're not really going to speculate. But you know, we do have Jesus recording a prayer at the end of his mission. The intimate prayer of Jesus with the Father is recorded in John chapter 17. Let's just take a sampling from the very beginning. What did Jesus pray at the end of this mission? It might give some thought to what he prayed at its commencement. John 17 verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you've given to him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I do not doubt that on the day of his baptism, the day of his public ministry beginning, Jesus prayed something similar. Looking forward, but something similar. Father, I remember the glory we shared in heaven, but I'm here to serve your purposes. I'm here to glorify you. I know you've given me authority. You've called me to this. I pray that as I go forward, you would help me give eternal life to those that you bring to me. Jesus understood his mission. He was praying. The Bible tells us at every critical juncture in the life of Jesus, he was praying when he chose his 12 disciples. The night before he went to the cross, sometimes for all night long, he would pray. He was in a special relationship with his father. So his baptism this day is different because of that. It's also different primarily for the two supernatural things that happened at the baptism of Jesus. We see them, don't we, in Luke 4. The first supernatural thing to happen was what? The heavens opened. I hope you're not so used to reading the Bible that your eyes just glaze over at that description. The heavens were opened. What is it that Luke's writing? What happened that day? Something in the sky. I, I love looking up at the sky. I, I don't know about you. I love looking at the clouds. I observe sometimes when there's a strange formation or some of us see pictures or see it for ourselves, the northern lights in the sky. The sky is the canvas upon which God makes himself known in so many ways through natural revelation. But natural revelation itself is is rent in two. The the heavens were opened. I I, I don't know if the, the beautiful sky blue was parted and you could see stars against the black of space. Who knows what was seen? 
But what was understood is that heaven was opening to communicate to the earth. Something was about to happen. I confess, I knew the other day when they announced the Queen of England was ill, uh, I had the news on and I was watching probably the BBC channel, and I saw, before any announcement was made, I saw a flag lower itself to half-staff over the palace. And I said, nobody's talking about that. And then a minute or so later, the announcement that the queen had passed. I saw the sign and anticipated the announcement. Everyone gets their attention arrested by this rending of the heavens. It tells us, listen, God speaks, God spoke. The heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him as a dove. We'll get to that in a moment. And a voice from heaven spoke. The voice from heaven says two things. Everyone's listening. I don't know exactly who heard it. Everyone heard something. Maybe believers heard most clearly. I don't know. But this is what is recorded in scripture that was spoken First, words of affection. You are my son. You are my beloved son. And together that expression means you are my one and only son. My particular son, the son of God is identified. Words of affection and ownership by God the Father for God the Son. The second part of the expression with you I am well pleased these are words of grace and blessing it's not just saying hey I'm proud of you kid Uh, we have such limited understanding of of what we mean when we say that here it literally means on you my favor rests you have my blessing You have the power of my grace. You are the royal son. You can do whatever you need to do, son. I'm not holding anything back. It's as if the son were the father's equal. As scripture teaches us later, more fully about the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons in one Godhead. Here is an example of the Trinity. It's not necessarily teaching the doctrine of the dream, but it's a clear example. You have the Father speaking, the Son presenting himself for the Father's will and blessing, and the Holy Spirit descending as a dove. You have the Son of God announced and heralded by the Father and by the Holy Spirit. In the monarchy example we talked of earlier in Britain, the other royal family members have to sign saying, yeah, this guy's king. I, William, will wait my turn. I don't think he wrote that out explicitly. And the king's other brothers and his sister sign, yes, Charles is king, not me. 
Here we have the Father and the Spirit implicitly and explicitly declaring, this is God the Son, our equal. The heavenly voice and then the Holy Spirit descends. Let's talk about that just for a minute. The Holy Spirit descended on him. Luke tells us, uniquely to Luke, and again, this is Luke the physician. He has an eye for detail. When he's heard things and the Spirit teaches him things, he so often gives us these wonderful details. He says, the Spirit descended in bodily form. What does that mean? You could perceive something as the Holy Spirit came. John the Baptist told John, the gospel writer, and it's recorded, that I was told that someone on whom the Spirit falls, I should baptize. They're the Messiah. You can read about that in John chapter 1. So John knew something might happen in his public ministry. Get ready, get ready. The King is coming. The Messiah is coming. And the Spirit had said, when you see the Holy Spirit fall, you'll know who the Messiah is. The Holy Spirit identifies the Messiah for us. There's some bodily form here, and the Bible tells us it was like a dove. Why a dove? We don't know exactly. There isn't a verse in the Bible you can say, this is the exact reason, but we have some clues. Wasn't the dove the prominent figure when the world was remade from the antediluvian times? of Adam and Eve when God wiped away the sin of the earth and and brought Noah and his family through the flood, that there was peace as they entered this new world. A dove came with an olive branch, giving them hope as something new was dawning. That might be triggered by the naming of the Holy Spirit as a dove and the Holy Spirit signifying Jesus as Messiah. Others, like the Puritan Thomas Goodwin, just takes... the the natural uh, significance of such a bird. And he says, a dove is the most meek and most innocent of all birds. I didn't know that, but that's what he says. Without gall, without talons, having no fierceness in it, expressing nothing but love and friendship to its mate in all its carriages and mourning over its mate in all its distresses. And accordingly, says the Puritan, a dove was a most fit emblem of the Spirit that was poured out upon our Savior when he was just about to enter on the work of our salvation. For as sweetly as doves do converse with doves, so may every sinner and Christ converse together. The Holy Spirit doesn't descend like a vulture, like an eagle. The Bible gives us a clue that something was perceived in the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the coming of the Holy Spirit was not only to manifest divine approval and designate Jesus, but it was to imbue him with power and with gifts. This brings us to the all-important question as we're looking at the baptism of Jesus. Why was he baptized? 
Jesus had no sin that he needed to wash and repent in front of John the Baptist. Why was Jesus baptized? Certainly not for his own sin. We know that. Jesus was without sin. He had told John in Matthew 3 that he was doing it simply to fulfill all righteousness. He had another purpose in mind by receiving this sign of repentance. Let's be clear about that. Jesus didn't become the sinless Savior when he was washed. He was sinless and he underwent baptism for another purpose, to fulfill righteousness and something more. He was baptized to identify with sinners, to identify with us. This is the beginning of his public ministry. And almost every quality evangelical commentator will point you in this direction. Philip Ryken says, a deliberate decision to join with sinners in baptism for the forgiveness of their sins. He says Jesus performed an act of solidarity with the sinners he came to save. The scholarly Leon Morris says much the same. Jesus saw sinners flocking to John's baptism. Clearly he decided to take his place with them. At the outset of his ministry, he publicly identified himself with the sinners he came to save. It's his public assumption of his task, his mission, his ministry. It's exciting that as he does so, he is filled with the Holy Spirit. It's as though Jesus himself has a personal day of Pentecost. Douglas Milne pointed that out. And I think that's a wonderful concept. The church, the disciples were cautioned to wait until they were clothed with power from on high. These men waiting for the Holy Spirit and power before they began their ministry of reaching the world. It should be no surprise that Jesus himself was filled with power from on high at the coming of the Holy Spirit so that he could begin his public ministry. You see, Jesus came and ministered in his flesh. He did what he did in the power of the Holy Spirit. As one preacher said, even for all his dignity, Jesus did not do all his miracles alone and independently by his own intrinsic power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descends. Jesus was baptized so that he could begin to identify with us and proceed to redeem us. Why? Not for himself. For whom? For us. And how will he save? This points us to the cross. Jesus was identifying with sinners and then had to come up with a sacrifice for their sin. And we begin to think of the cross. And Jesus himself in his public teaching and ministry would explain that he must go to Jerusalem and die for the sins of many. But then he would take up his life again. This is but the beginning point of Jesus joining with sinners. And as one man said, if we are amazed to see him baptized, 
we are all the, all the more amazed to see him crucified for us. In Christ, we are all sons of God through faith. Galatians 3, 26. In Christ, we will have access to the Holy Spirit. In Christ, we will have God as our Father. In Christ, God will look upon us with love. So in closing this morning on this Communion Sunday, let me emphasize just two things. We see today in Jesus the unique provision for our salvation. The unique provision for our salvation. Someone like us, born to share our lot, to keep God's word perfectly, and then lay down his sinless life in our place. And we're told in Hebrews that he had to be born, that he would have blood to shed. God, as God cannot die, Jesus the Son of Man, the incarnate Lord, died. And he could shed his sinless blood for us. And because the one who died, Christ, was also the Son of God, his blood had divine power and effect upon whosoever believes. So he did not just die one for one, but one for many. The second Adam, a whole race of human beings, will be Right with God through this Jesus. And he steps forward to offer himself for us. Can we not also see here in Jesus the great demonstration of God's love for sinners? Yes, we preach about sin. We preach about God's wrath. Some scary things. The wrath of God is very real. But we see here, even in these first moments, not only God's love for his son Jesus, but Jesus showing love for us. That he would enter into the murky waters of the little Jordan River. It's not very big. He'd wade out there shoulder to shoulder with the other sinners. But when his turn came, knowing it was a unique baptism to still undergo that rite, Though he had no sin to shed, he loved those sinners. He loves sinners still. Jesus made the Father known. It was Jesus who told us, John 3.16, God so loves the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Behold the manner of of love. Jesus is saying here that he's come to stand in the place of sinners. The shadow of the cross, says Dale Davis, falls over the waters of the Jordan. His baptism, in his baptism, Jesus commits himself to take our place. No greater love than this. My friends, God declared his love for Jesus on that day. If you are joined to Jesus, you will know God's love. Even as Romans 5 points that out. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit 
and God's love poured into our hearts. And we are his. Know and love this Savior and make him known to others. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you this day for the truth of your word. We thank you for the clarity of the gospel, its historical accuracy, and its telling us of the importance of this event, of the Lord Jesus Christ who willingly stepped forward into this public life that he might be the savior of men and women. We thank you for John the Baptist fulfilling his role and pointing others to the savior. May we ourselves know Christ and make him known. May we see his love. May we see his gentleness and his power, his authority exercised on our behalf. And may we rest in him. May we not fear what men can do. May we not have any diminished hope of heaven. But may it be all the more secure and vital